Hi, and welcome to our podcast, Making Sense of Science, the show that features interviews with leading experts in health and science about the latest developments and the big ethical questions. I'm your host, Kira Peikoff, the editor of Leaps.org, and today we're going to be talking about a topic front and center in many people's minds, kids and the COVID vaccine. I'm honored that our guest today is Dr. Emily Oster, an economist at Brown and a best-selling author who is admired by lots of parents, including myself, for her data-driven approach to decision-making regarding pregnancy, babies, and kids. Since COVID, she's also spearheaded a comprehensive data hub about COVID in schools. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. So um, I wanted to talk to you first and foremost about the kids, COVID vaccine, and your own decision-making, because I know you also have young kids, and I just wanted to start by hearing a little bit about your thought process as you're approaching uh, this fall season and going into winter and having your kids in school. Yeah, so my kids are six and 10, um, and uh, I thought a lot about the questions around uh, vaccinations, um, and I will sort of, spoiler alert at the beginning, my kids were vaccinated already uh, on the first day that the vaccines were uh, were available. Um, and I can say a little bit more about why we, why we made that choice. Um, and so, uh, so, you know, one, one thing I've spent a lot of time talking about in the last year is that kids are low risk themselves for serious illness. Uh, and that, and that remains true. And so if people say, you know, did you vaccinate your kids so they will not be hospitalized with COVID? Uh, that is not a thing I was very worried about before. And the size of the reduction in that is positive, I assume, but again, sort of very small. But I think there are some good reasons uh, to vaccinate. So one is to prevent my kids from getting COVID at all, um, which seems inconvenient um, and, of course, could be serious uh, for many of the same reasons I vaccinate them against the flu. The second reason is practical, logistical, uh, to avoid quarantines at school, to hopefully contribute to a broader set of higher vaccination rates at their school, which will let the school relax other kinds of, uh, of restrictions. And the third, probably in some ways the very most important for me, uh, is that they have some grandparents who are uh, at higher risk for COVID. And so I really do not want my kids to have COVID and pass it on to a grandparent, even a vaccinated grandparent who is immune compromised. Okay, makes sense. And I think your thinking mirrors a lot of other parents today who were rushing to get the shot. Um, I went to get my kid the shot after the um, shot was authorized last week. And we went to a pharmacy and the line was way too long. So I had to go back. I'm going to go back later this week with an appointment. Um, but that being said, I think there's also this huge middle group of parents who are in the not like against the shot. Many of them have been vaccinated themselves, but they're in this wait and see camp because they're not quite convinced that it's necessary to take on like literally any risk of a vaccine that um, is new for kids versus a virus that has a very, very low risk of, of harm. So can you talk a little bit about um, that type of attitude towards this? Do you think that's a fair attitude to take? Do you, would you try to persuade those parents to get vaccinated sooner? And at what point is long enough amount of time to decide, okay, now we've waited, we've seen, and we're ready? Like, how do people decide about that threshold? Yeah. So 
I think this is extremely common. You know, if we think about the groups of people, the kind of vaccine eager, the extremely hesitant and the the sort of worried in the middle, I think in in all age group vaccinations, we've seen those three groups uh, in the as the we've moved to younger and younger age groups in vaccinations. I think that 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 sort of middle group has gotten in some ways bigger. Um and in the case of kids, you're absolutely right. Many people see the low risk to kids. They think, well, surely there are some risks to, to vaccines. And uh, given the tiny risk of COVID, that risk benefit trade-off feels different than it did for, for an elderly person. I think it is different than it, than it is for an elderly person. The other piece that comes up for a lot of people is just the the thing of okay this trial for 5 to 11 year olds has 2500 kids in it 2300 kids in it of whom 1500 of them got uh, got the vaccine for many people that doesn't feel big enough they feel like i'm worried about small probability events small probability risks that are so small that they wouldn't have been detected in that trial i actually think that's that's a um i i, I don't think that that's a that's a unreasonable uh fear the good news is that there are a lot of people who are very eager to get their kids vaccinated. And by, you know, two weeks from now, millions and millions and millions of kids in this age group will have been vaccinated. And when we think about side effects of vaccines, be they myocarditis or other kinds of low risk, the kinds of small, small risks, they almost exclusively occur within the first couple of weeks of vaccination. So if you said, you know, when are we going to know whether there's an increased risk of myocarditis in this in this age group, we're going to know that in four weeks, six weeks, you know, for like within a week after this, the second dose. So by this, you know, second week of December, we'll have a tremendous amount of additional information. So the main point that I think we should be making from a policy standpoint is encouraging people to who are feeling anxious to frame the question for themselves as, uh, as you know, do I want to vaccinate now or do I want to wait and learn more rather than saying, do I want to vaccinate now or not? Because I'm worried if we start, do I vaccinate now or not, that people are going to decide there or not and they're not going to revisit. So I think it's really important to kind of help people have a plan to revisit this. And I think just to add to what you're saying in terms of do I want to vaccinate now or wait I, I want to be able to provide people with an, with that helpful framework for deciding when have I waited enough versus when do I need to wait more. So can you talk a little bit more about that decision beyond just the myocarditis part? Yeah, I mean, I think that almost any vaccine, any any risk that we would have out of a vaccine is going to occur within a couple of weeks of, of vaccination. For most cases, it's within a couple of days because what's happening is there's a strong immune response. And then in some in some people that could in principle cause some uh, cause some some risks. Um, and so but that means if you sort of think about, OK, a bunch of people are going to be vaccinated this week. So by the end of this current week, we're going to have millions of vaccines. And then that group will have a second shot, you know, the kind of first week of December. So by the middle of December, we will have millions of kids through two doses. That feels like a point at which we could say, OK, now you want, like, let's recalibrate, let's see what we have learned. And my strong instinct is what we will have learned is that this is a very safe vaccine. And then hopefully people will feel more comfortable doing it. I, I also want to share um, a little personal story here, because I think it's really important to point out that at, when you vaccinate on a mass scale, 
and life happens, there's side effects of life that are going to happen anyway, whether or not you vaccinate. So um, I mentioned I'd taken my son to get the shot. The line was too long, so he left. The next day, he started blinking a lot. And it was like sort of a weird tick behavior that I he'd never exhibited before. And I thought to myself, if he had just gotten the shot the day before, I would have like maybe assumed that this was related to the vaccine. But clearly, what it wasn't. But I just wanted to point out this like that anecdotes and just assuming causation is really a difficult thing. Yeah. You know, no, it's it's interesting in the so in the trial data, you know, of course, they look for for side effects. Right. And so and and there's a there's a placebo group. There's a group that did not get the vaccine and then a group that got the vaccine. And so, you know, when you when you look at how common are these side effects, you're looking at, at you know, when do they arise in the in the treatment group, but also when do they arise in the control group? And so for something like fatigue, actually, like a lot of kids seem tired a lot of the time or, you know, they seem cranky. And so and then, of course, that happens some in the in the in the vaccine group. And you might attribute that to vaccination, but it actually happens about as often in the non in the non vaccine group. And so just it's really the case that like about a third of the time your kid is kind of a jerk. Um, because they're just a kid and not about the vaccine. It's just that your kid is kind of cranky sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the second dose strategy. So from a policy perspective, they authorized it three weeks apart, just like for adults. However, we know from other countries and research that's been done that it's actually helpful for the immune system to delay that second dose. Like Canada is doing eight to 12 weeks and they don't need a booster shot yet because their immune memory is lasting longer. So what is your opinion on um, parents delaying that second dose since kids are at such a low risk overall? I think many parents will do that, or at least some parents will think about doing that. Uh, given the fairly low risk to kids, the very low risk to kids, and the uh, quite uh, robust immune response that they saw, this is not going to be a population that is going to need a lot of boosters anyway. Um, so, you know, I will say we had this conversation. I had this conversation with my spouse about should we push off the should we push off the second dose for this reason? And uh, we came down to no uh, for practical reasons that effectively it is more important to us in the short term to have the kids be fully vaccinated by the official definition of, of fully vaccinated um, because that will address some of these practical issues that are motivational for us. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, for me, like as a parent of a boy, I'm also thinking, okay, if there's an extremely low chance of myocarditis that we know can occur after the second shot, could we even further lessen that risk by delaying the shot? Yeah. And I think people have talked about that. And there's a lot of reasons to think that that would, um, that that, that would have some effects. And there are certainly places that are doing only one shot for, for boys in these age groups. The, I mean, on the, I don't know how old your son is, but the, he's five. Yes. But the, the thing that sort of pushes against that in that age group is that myocarditis as a kind of baseline risk is far more common in, in older kids than in younger kids. So it's just not a complication we see a lot in, in five-year-olds at all. So it isn't a complication I think we're likely to expect in this, uh, in this, in this younger age group to the same extent. Right. Yeah, and that's a really reassuring point. I know that other doctors and scientists have made as well. Um, they're less at risk, and I've heard it's something to do with testosterone levels, and that's why teens. That's are what I heard too. It, yeah. <laughs> so young boys are not at that level of testosterone. So hopefully, it, we won't see that effect in in boys, young boys at all. Um, but of course, we'll have to wait and see. So that kind of brings me to another question um, that I hear a lot 
uh, from other parents and friends, which is, well, we just don't know the long term side effects. And when and then if I respond and say, well, we know that there's been no vaccine in history that's had long term side effects beyond the initial two months after administration. But then people say, well, this is a novel technology, so we just can't use that to reassure us. That's a very difficult thing to argue against because it's it's inherently impossible to know, right? There, there's always this sort of what if, what if, what if it it has this. It, there's no reason to think that. But if you're looking for data to rule it out, it would be impossible to produce it. So asking the question, well, what if there's some long term effect in ten years? How would you know? Well, the only way you would know is that it, there's absolutely no reason at all to think that there that there would be. Um, but that's not the same as uh, that's not the same as as being sure. Um, and you know, I I'm not. In, in some ways, I think the the most obvious argument against that is to say, well, what if there's a complication of uh, COVID that appears in ten years? And you know, at this point, given the indebt what we expect about the coronavirus, which is that it will be endemic uh, forever, you are either getting the vaccine or you're getting COVID, um, probably eventually both, but you're certainly getting, uh, you're certainly gonna, gonna get COVID at some point if you haven't been uh, vaccinated. And so I, I think in, you know, in that sense, it's really not a choice of kind of vaccine or not, it's really a choice of vaccine or COVID. Uh, and both of those have, you know, potentially unknown long-term side effects where the potential unknown long-term side effects of COVID are probably more likely than the long-term side effects of the kind of mRNA stabilizers or whatever people think that is going on there. Right. Especially because the spike protein of the actual virus does get into the nucleus of your cells versus this mRNA technology, which doesn't. Um, I think it, to me, and having studied the biological mechanism um, tried to understand it as much as I can, it seems much less likely to cause harm than the actual virus that can go in and damage your all of your organ systems. Yes, I agree. <laughs> uh, so to me, I'd rather take a chance on the vaccine that has an incredible safety profile for billions of doses so far. Yes, agreed. Um, and that being said, I think the point about uh, what, what you just said, like you're either going to get COVID or get the shot eventually is a really important point because we're not choosing a, the vaccine in a vacuum. Um, and we know that other viruses can trigger serious complications many years later. Um, I just saw research, for example, that kids who had mononucleosis um, in their young adulthood or early childhood have an associated higher risk of getting MS later in life. So we just don't know with these viruses. Yeah, and I think that part of what makes some of these decisions about vaccinations difficult is that with your kids, it feels like a like an active choice. And so if something happened, it feels like I chose this. Like I chose like what if there was a complication and I'm going to feel that I chose and I imposed this on my on my kid. And that active the, the downsides of active choice often feel worse to us than this just happened to me. And so in but in that sense, if you say, well, really, you're choosing to vaccinate or you're choosing to get covid, that is a little bit of a different frame where then both of those things are an active choice as opposed to I could choose to get it or I could do the default, which somehow feels like safer. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point. So we're, we're always choosing. We're always choosing. Hopefully, as parents, the lesser of 
two things, the lesser harm of two choices, right? So it's never just one or zero. Exactly. We're always choosing. Yeah. And that's just made the last, you know, 20 months for parents so impossible in every way. <laughs> Decision fatigue. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about school. I know you've ha you've had a major presence in the school debates. It's been so highly controversial. What do you think is going to happen with school and mandates? It will vary tremendously across the country. California has already been pretty clear that they are going to mandate possibly as early as January, although I would be surprised if that follows through. Um, I think there are, there are clearly places like Florida where uh, this vaccine mandate is going to be a, a fairly long time coming, if, uh, if, if ever. Even more interesting question, the thing I'm just not sure about is when we come around to next fall, are we going to see mandates in places like New York, Massachusetts, um, you know, sort of think a little bit more of the middle Illinois, uh, Rhode Island. Um, and I'm not sure because I think on, on the one hand, we do mandate a lot of vaccines for kids. On the other hand, those mandates tend to be for vaccinations that are, uh, that are sort of core childhood illnesses, measles, pertussis, things which affect kids and babies, uh, rather than things that are, um, that are, more affecting older people. So we don't mandate flu vaccines in schools. Maybe we should. Um, but the arguments for mandating COVID vaccine and not mandating a flu vaccine are uh, a, a little bit convoluted. Mm -hmm. So in an ideal world, what do you think the requirement or standard should be then for a school vaccine mandate? Like if you could set the policy, what reasoning would you use to decide like measles? Yes. Flu. Maybe. I mean, how do you determine what is actually like worth mandating? I mean, I think I would mandate all of these things eventually. Um, I think the question with COVID is, um, you know, is about whether we mandate like when about when I, eventually this is going to be mandated. I think the more complicated question is when I think we need to give people some time to feel more comfortable with this. Um, to feel more more comfortable with the uh, with the virus, and I, I am, I would say candidly, like my biggest concerns, for example, in these discussions of of California, are that we are going to force a lot of kids out of school who uh, really need to go to school uh, on the basis of a mandate for a you know for a vaccine where there is understandable. Uh, resistance that I think we can overcome, although we're probably less likely to overcome it if we kick a bunch of kids out of out of school. So I think that's that feels like a very significant tension to me. Absolutely. I mean, this is probably going to be the biggest debate of of next fall if I had to have a crystal ball, because um, by then we'll have lots and lots of data on the vaccine. It's probably going to be approved rather than authorized, I would imagine. And then it can pave the way for a lot of mandates to happen, right? Yeah. And then I think a lot of parents are going are gonna to push back. Um, you know, part of a very unfortunate aspect of the politicization of the, the COVID vaccine has been a re-politicization of some of the more routine vaccines that have been for a long time required for schooling. And so, I, you know, I think that's um, we've seen huge declines in childhood vaccination rates over the last couple of years. Some of that is about access and some of it is about is about more resistance. And I think that's um, that's that's really not good. It's not good. Do you think that there should be an exemption for I mean, medical or or philosophical reasons for parents? I 
don't in the sense, I mean, I think there should, of course, that we should always have medical exemptions for these things. Um, you know, I think what we've, what we've seen uh, with, for example, some of the other vaccine exemptions in California is that when you, um, is that when you allow for sort of generic exemptions, uh, it really removes the value of the mandate. So I it gets it would be like there's a sort of choice of have a mandate or not have a mandate. Once you have a mandate, you kind of need to have a mandate and not something where you can bring a note from home and just say that you don't feel like it. That's not a mandate, right? So I, I think that the issue of exemptions is really about, um, you know, would you actually want to mandate? You're always going to have medical exemptions. You're always going to have the opportunity for religious exemptions. You're always going to have an opportunity for people to, um, to you know, opt out with a with a concrete reason um but i think if you're if you're just going to let kind of generic opt out then you you might as well just not have a mandate in the first place right and i want to read one other point that's that is an issue we'll be discussing early next year just to kind of give a heads up to listeners and also give you a chance to weigh in on this is um beyond school and mandates for young kids what uh soon parents of even as young as six-month-old infants, are going to have the decision about whether to vaccinate them. And obviously, they're not in school, so that's not a mandate issue at all. It's more about um, if you are a parent of an infant, which I actually am. I have a a five-month-old. This is going to be something I have to consider next year. So for parents like myself, what would you say in terms of decision-making? So the first thing I would say is don't have hypothetical arguments. Uh, you know, we haven't seen the data yet. And I think when we saw the 5 to 11 data, there were pieces of it that I was surprised by. So, for example, the efficacy numbers, uh, I thought we would get effectively nothing on efficacy, that, the, that there would be so few cases that we wouldn't be able to see anything about efficacy. And it turned out we could see something about efficacy. I thought that was um, that was informative. And so without seeing either the safety data or the efficacy data on the younger kids, I think it's hard to... Um, you know, it's it's hard to think about to think about that. Uh, the arguments for vaccinating the youngest kids are going to be even less. Um, probably even the the benefit risk trade off is probably going to be even less than uh, than for for sort of older kids because the age gradient is there even within these um, these younger kids. And so I think we will continue to see the sort of same kinds of, of hesitancy or resistance that we saw for, for older kids will we'll continue to see uh, probably more of uh, more of for, for younger kids. Um, and my guess is it will be a long time before there's any kind of mandate for that, um, for that age group. Right, absolutely, especially if they're not in daycare or anything like that. Yeah, then there's no, yeah, then there's no way to enforce, basically enforce a mandate. So if you had uh, an infant next year who was just at home with you, um, and the, let's say the safety and efficacy data was comparable to the young kids' data. Would you like wait on that until the baby is older, or would you go for the vaccine, or just um, be undecided as of right now? I think I would. Uh, I think I would vaccinate, but I also would be very uh, understanding of people who would who would not. Um, that that just feels to me like a choice that is going to come down to a lot of things about parental preference. Um, and I think that I would do it, but, uh, but I can see that many people probably will not. Yeah. Especially with it, with a baby that's not socializing, um, seems like the, the necessity of it is even less. That is true. Okay. I want to go back to schools for a minute and then we'll wrap up pretty soon. I know this conversation has just flown by. Um, you've been vocal about masks in schools and 
needing an off-ramp at some point for that. Can you talk a little bit about your thinking there? Yeah, so when we think about the value of masks or really any mitigation, uh, we're kind of thinking about many different layering, many different mitigation strategies. What we have seen in schools is that schools are by and large uh, fairly low low risk, um, and uh, and particularly with the introduction of vaccines for for kids who are five to eleven, we now have a situation in, in which effectively all vulnerable adults adults who are interested in being vaccinated are able to be. Uh, all kids who are interested in being vaccinated are able to be or will be as there's additional rollout over the next uh, over the next few weeks. And, you know, that means we're in a situation where we have this very significant layer of protection that is there. And it is a time in which we can then start thinking about what is the right time to remove some of these additional uh, some of these additional layers of protection. And one of the things I, I wrote about this a little bit this morning is um, you know, we as we do that, there is a consideration of, you know, is there any downside? Right. So if it were just like masks are, you know, as I say in what I wrote today, like it like if masks are like friendship bracelets, like, OK, what's the big deal? Just keep just keep wearing them. If masks were like blindfolds, we would be much more eager to, to take them off. We we do kind of need to understand, are there some downsides? And I, I think, you know, it's it's hard to get really precise answers to that. But knowing what we know about how kids learn to speak, how kids learn to read, how kids learn to read social emotional cues, the value of being able to hear teachers, to be able to hear each other. There are some pretty reasonable reasons to think that there are downsides to masking. And we do not, therefore, many people do not think, I do not think, that we want to be in a situation in which kids are wearing masks forever. Uh, as a result of this, nor is it really appropriate to wait to a, to a time in which no one ever gets COVID because that's the same as forever. And so we need to start talking about what are the metrics there? Are we removing masks as a result of vaccine availability? Are we removing masks as a result of some combination of vaccine availability and hospitalization rates? You know, there, there's going to there's gonna have to be some discussion about that, but I think it's an important one to have. I think it's unfortunate, too, that people's attitude towards masks tends to be very tribal yeah based on politics and this is it's just super unfortunate because we should be making policy decisions solely based on evidence and data not on someone's political leanings right i completely agree i have been amazed at how political the masking has become and i think part of it is um is that people are afraid and part of it is that you know it's a it's a kind of tribal virtue signaling like some aspect of of that in both directions right i mean i was i you know when i write about like are there downsides to masks i hear from both sides um, who are <laughs> angry, I hear, from people who say, you know, how can we even possibly contemplate removing masks when some people still get COVID? And then people who are saying, you know, I can't even believe you would even contemplate ever having masks on. And, you know, this is, like, it's just like, they're just, everybody's so angry. They're so angry. So let me say this. I, I try to be as evidence-based as possible in my decision-making. And I, Full disclosure, I don't consider myself a Democrat or Republican. I'm an independent. So there, that, there's that. Okay, if anybody really cares. I don't think it's relevant to this, but happens to be part there's of the some conversation, unfortunately. Yes. Um, so, like, I wear an N95 mask if I go to the store, even though I'm triple vaccinated. So nobody can accuse me of being anti-mask or anti-vax in any way. However, I have serious qu questions around whether kids, especially at the preschool level, wearing a cloth mask 
for half the day because part of the day they're napping with no mask and part of the day they're having lunch inside with no mask. Does that actually protect my preschool? I completely. And, and in fact, I mean, I, I think I'm you and I are extremely aligned here. Um, although I think I would consider myself a, a Democrat in case it is relevant for the for the conversation. But I am also triple vaccinated. I also wear an N95 when I when I go to the store. But I think it's 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 really right that that sort of questions like how like how much protection is being con- conveyed by these masks. And so, you know, and then you sort of think about both the theoretical protection, which is, I think, already put quite low, given what we know about kids and cloth masks and, and so on. And then the reality of the protection in those settings where kids are appropriately unmasked to sleep and to eat and and so on, you know, the the reality of that protection may be even lower, even putting aside the person who emailed me the other day to say that when the kids take the masks off, the teachers put the masks in a pile and then they (laughs) hand them back out and and it just felt like that that Uh, might actually, that's, that's probably, that's probably worse. You know, it, my son's had three colds since he started in September and all his the kids in his class and him wear all, all masks. Yeah, so. it, it is not for kids that age. I mean, I think it, it's interesting because I think for the older kids, the the combination of like having kids not go to school when they're sick and some probably some amount of masking, I think, did dial down some of these illnesses last year. I think for younger kids, their mask etiquette is just not very good. Um, and we know that they must, obviously, they can't be perfect because every kid in America has hand, foot, and mouth disease right now, I've noticed. And, and, RSV, and RSV and all that. And then and also, like, can we talk about the more nuanced conversation around type of mask? Like, cloth masks in the age of Delta are not helping No, they're not helping anything. No, and even that even that Bangladeshi mask study basically shows very little to no benefit of uh, of cloth masking. But even while they do show benefits of surgical masks, but we don't have our kids in surgical masks. So, I mean, the other point that I think is, is, you know, worth making, which I'll credit Joe Allen from Harvard with, um, having pointed out to me is that, you know, when parents are anxious, if parents are very anxious about the idea of mask removal for their kids, it's probably worth noting that we now have quite good N95 options, KN95 options that fit on, that fit on kids. So if, and, and if your individual kid is wearing a KN95, they're far more protected than if they're wearing a cloth mask and so is everyone else. But if you just think about the differences in efficacy there. And so I think we, we may need to sort of shift the conversation a little bit to say like, Hey, you know, taking, you know, removing mask mandates, writing an off ramp for masks. It doesn't mean no masks allowed. It doesn't mean nobody can wear wear a mask. And if you're if you feel like the sort of circumstances of your kid or your family mean that they need an added layer of protection, a KN95 mask is going to really provide a lot of that far beyond what is probably being provided now by the kind of everyone cloth masking. Absolutely. And I will say I have a, a disposable daily KN94 mask that my son wears. Yeah. And it's from Korea. And I just feel like that if he has to wear a mask, I'd at least have at least you have a good one, a little better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I hope that they don't stack it with the other masks. Yeah, I hope so, too. But maybe I'll ask. <laughs> maybe that. now. Now, maybe ask that. <laughs> I just want to wrap up with one thing, bringing it back to the vaccine question. So we know millions of kids have had COVID up until now. And I've seen some doctors recommending, even though this isn't policy, because on a policy level, it's probably too costly or too challenging to implement this widely. But for individual parents who want to make the best vaccine decision, might have questions around how much, you know, how necessary it is. Should your kid get an antibody test? And if they've had COVID before, do they only need one shot? 
there is a tremendous amount of disagreement uh, about this, um, both about both pieces of that. So, do you know, would an antibody test be the right thing, the right way to kind of sort this out? It's not actually not, you know, even if your kid had COVID before, they may not, they may not have antibodies, but they may still have some protection. And so, I'm not sure how much information is actually conveyed by the antibody test per se. Um, and then the question of one dose is also again um, kind of. There's a there's a lot of disagreement. I think probably also intersects a fair amount with again this like sort of myocarditis risk stuff that um, that if your kid has already had COVID and they're in like a high myocarditis risk group like the you know 15 year old boys maybe that's a different calculation than if you have a six year old girl. And so I think all of those things are going to have to be part of the conversation, but in a way that so far our data is not good enough. So would you agree with the policymakers the two? two shots, three weeks apart was the right way to go for a blanket policy for all the kids? I think that that is the most, uh, that was the most reasonable place to start. And I think that we all, all of those guys, guys, women, mostly got, well, all the individuals making that are going to know that at individual, uh, that in individual circumstances, there is going to be some futzing around with the, with the, uh, with the way that this is actually implemented. And do you think eventually we'll have more individualized policy yes, around this? For sure, I think for sure we will get to a place, you know, eight, six months, eight months from now, when we're kind of going into the next school year, we will get into a place with a much more detailed uh, description of exactly who should be vaccinated at which, uh, you know, in which in which way. And lastly, do you think that we're going to need to give our kids boosters in six months? No. I don't think you so. don't think so. I don't you think mentioned so. that before, but I just wanted to go back to that for a minute. I don't think so, because I think that what we are going to find is that for healthy adults, the immunity associated with um, the immunity associated with uh, with the two shots is actually quite good. Uh, and as everyone gets more vaccinated, as we get more kids vaccinated, as we get just generally more people vaccinated, the case rates are going to continue to come down. The impetus for additional boosters to prevent breakthrough infections is going to go is going to go down. I think what we will see starting either next fall or the fall after is some like combo COVID booster flu RSV uh, shot coming out, which uh, will be recommended, but will probably not so much be a booster, but be a uh, sort of targeted to whatever is the dominant strain. It would be amazing to have something for RSV, yes, wouldn't it? I know. So there, I think that Moderna is going to do that within the next year, which would, of course, actually be like save a tremendous number of kid, children lives more so than probably the COVID vaccine. That's incredibly exciting. Yes. Um, Agreed. Especially for parents of infants. Agreed. Even bigger fear for, for parents of infants than COVID a lot of times. Yes, so. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for such an interesting discussion. Um, lots of food for thought for our listeners. If you like the show, follow Making Sense of Science. Check us out on Instagram and um, Twitter and Facebook. And are you planning to vaccinate your own kids? Let us know and we'll keep the discussion going online. Thank you, everybody. And we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>